To you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. O God, in you we place our trust. Let us not be put to shame. Let not our enemies exult over us. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your path. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. and For you we wait all the day long. Be with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We are in the book of Matthew. We're in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. God had promised in in Deuteronomy that one greater than Moses would come, the lawgiver. And he is here, and he's standing on the mountain, and he's giving his law. His law is love. And so we're seeing all the things that Jesus says about different issues in the culture that they were addressing, and he's getting at the heart of the issue, getting at what's motivating people. And so in chapter 6, where we're at is, Jesus is addressing hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, which means that you're behaving in a way that's different than what's motivating your heart. That you're acting one way, but really you're after something else. And in that culture, in Judaism, there were like, they called them the the three pillars of, of righteousness. So if you wanted to be right before God, if you were considered to be a good person, someone that God was pleased with, then you were going to do these three things and do them well. You would give money to the poor, the almsgiving. You would be a prayer. You would pray well, and you would fast. So almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Last week we looked at almsgiving, giving to the poor, and Jesus said, you know those hypocrites? They act like they love their neighbor. They act like they want to help people. And so they give money to the poor, but deep down inside, they want the attention of people. They want people to notice that they have done a good deed. And so what he said is that they're after the praise or the worship of people. They want to be worshipped. They want to be the center of everyone's life. Everybody looks at them and says, oh, what a great person you are. And so last week, we also looked at what was the cure for hypocrisy. So we, he's addressing this issue of hypocrisy. What is the cure for hypocrisy? And the first one was the acknowledgement. That without God's power in our lives, without God working in you, without God producing his fruit in you, you are completely destitute of what this thing called righteousness. You try to do good things, but you're doing it from a selfish place in your heart, and it's not righteousness. God sees what's going on in your heart, and he knows better. And so he says, even though you're doing good things, you're doing it for the wrong purpose, and so when you stand before me, you'll receive no reward. You've already received your reward when they gave you attention. So we are to recognize that apart from God, we do not have righteousness. And we are to remember that we're seeking the reward of our Father. That at the end of the day, the thing that we care more than anything else is that we have a relationship with our Father. That He, that God is our reward. And when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, then you are free to love people as yourself. So that was the first of the three pillars. Today we're going to talk about prayer and 
fasting. So if you've turned there in Matthew chapter 6, let's read from the beginning. Now it starts with verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That is the main idea. Beware practicing your righteousness before people, where you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And now here are his three examples of it. First, verse 2, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue, and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Here's a second example. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then here is his third example. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your feet, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and seal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where neither thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is addressing prayer, and he's telling us how we're not to pray. We are not to be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the synagogues and in the street corners. You know, the synagogues, like the places of worship, they love to stand, give their oratories. They're in the street where, you know, they'll stop and pray, and everybody's just going to have to hear them praying their great prayers. Do that I say to you, you have received a reward. Now, in the first century, in the Jewish culture, prayer... It was a big deal. And a faithful Jew had a rigorous daily spiritual program of praying that they were supposed to do. So you were expected to recite what was called the Shema twice a day. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. So there was a prayer that they were supposed to recite before you got going in the the day and before you went to bed. There were 18 benedictions. 18 benedictions that they were to be prayed in between throughout the day. There were prayers for the beginning and end of every meal. Come on, Americans, like, let's do the beginning. They prayed at the beginning, they prayed at the end. And the prayers were, um, had different prescriptions. So there was one prayer if you had fruit. There was another prayer if you had vegetables. 
and there's another prayer if you had bread. And often, the rabbis were in this debate about what was the minimum amount of food to be considered a meal that you'd have to pray about. One olive? Two olives? Three? No, there are some calories, right? So now you have to pray, right? And there was a prayer for olives. There are prayers for seeing a shooting star, prayers for approaching a site of a miracle, prayers for hearing a cloud of thunder, or when one sees the mountains or hills or sea or rivers or deserts. There's a prayer for receiving good news. There's a prayer for receiving bad news. You get the point? There were a lot of prayers that a good, righteous Jew would have memorized. Now think about the practice, the amount of attention, prestigious attention that they're having to give to know all these prayers and when to do it. And so, I mean, think about your favorite hobby. When you see a good craftsman in your hobby, you're like, okay, so in that culture, that's praying, right? They're like, that person's good. They know them all. And so, if you had spent so much time and attention having memorized all these prayers, you might as well let people know it. And so, there you were, praying. And, and, and in street corners, there, in the, uh, in the middle of the day, the, the stack, there would be horns that would blow to remind you it's time for the prayer. And it just so happens that these people would be standing on the street corners when everybody stopped. So when it's time to pray, there they were, standing on street corners, as opposed to in the dark alley or something like that, where no one would hear them. So there they were, practicing their righteousness before men. Now people in that culture would be quite impressed with you. Quite impressed at all. They would assume that you had it good with God, because you're doing all the right things. Man, God doesn't seem to hear my prayers, but that person right there, God must hear their prayer. They're doing everything right. And here's Jesus exposing their motive. He says, they pray so that they might be seen by others and they have their reward. Okay, so that's first century Jews, and this is us, 2,000 years later. So what does this look like to us? Because there's not a bunch of prayers that we're expected to know. But I wonder how often we talk about praying, but don't actually pray. How much we want to be perceived as having a vibrant prayer life, but in fact, we don't actually have a vibrant prayer life. Like when you come to say, I'll pray for you. Did you? Because you want to be, in that moment, you want to see like, sympathetic and righteous and Christian, and you would say, I'll pray for you. So the person's like, oh, that person's got my back, but then you don't. You're not praying. Or do you pray when it's socially acceptable? Like, the only time you're praying is at mealtimes or at church. The only times that you're excited about the truth of Scripture when you're at church, but, you know, you, yourself, by yourself, not so much. Why do we do that? Why do we kind of put on this show when we're around people who expect us to behave a certain way. It's because we love the attention, the social acceptance of other people more than we love the acceptance and fellowship with our Father. We want to be perceived as righteous because of what we have done. So Jesus gets at the quality of our hearts. Do you want to test this out? See how it's going? Is your heart truly there or are you a hypocrite? Just I'll tell you what, here's a test. You don't believe me? Go into an inner room. Go into a dark place where no one would see you. Go, you know, go in your bedroom when it's quiet. I don't know, every house has got a quiet place somewhere. Laundry room. Go for a walk. And pray. And see how long that lasts. Because if it was truly about 
your relationship with your father, if it was truly about your relationship with God, then it would be no issue. Like you would pray and it would be natural and spontaneous and you won't burn out in one minute. Right? You're not gonna, you're not gonna piss it off. It's gonna, but if, if it's the attention of the people that you're really after, being perceived as being right, doing the right things at the right times, then you'll be like a candle when the, like, oxygen gets cut out of the room. Because the fuel's not there. The people's attention's not there. And you're not, you're not gonna do it. So you pray, you're out of steam. You don't even know what to pray for. You're not even really that interested in praying. Why? Because your prayers have not been about a relationship with your Father. So I'm asking you, I'm asking me, do you pray privately? Jesus also presents another way not to pray. He tells us not to pray like the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles... That was the titles that the Jewish culture gave to everyone who was not a Jew. So you're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. Okay. Not a Jew, also known as Gentiles. And it wasn't just a social, ethnic divide. It was a religious divide. They worshipped a different God. They worshipped in a different way. They worshipped differently. And Jesus warns us, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard. They think they will be heard, why? For their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So in the religions that were surrounding the Jews in that day, they had every nation had their local deities. And they would pray. You remember the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And they're just making all that caterwauling. Like, hear us, Baal, hear us. And they're clashing and they're cutting themselves. And and the issue was they it wasn't that the gods didn't know that they were praying. In the, in their system, the gods were pretty much just indifferent. The gods didn't care. Like, eh, I have better things to do. The gods were finicky beings. So you'd have to like heap up many words, much like mm, a toddler, right? Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, so that you'd be because. You know, we're un- inattentive parents, right? And so we need, like, someone to draw our attention to us. Like, oh, is there a need? I'm sorry. And then, and then they would try to, like, to flatter the gods. How great, how great you are. Give me, give me, give me, right? Or they would try to coerce them. So they're, they're trying to get the attention of the gods. Now, it's interesting that Jesus brings this up. So he says, the hypocrites who want to be seen by people, and then, as it were, the pagans who want to be seen by the gods. It's like it's like two sides of the coin. The hypocrites, they're the religious pros, and again, they're after the attention of the people. But here are the Gentiles, after the attention of the God. But in both cases, they're using so the religious Pharisees were using people as a means to an end. They want the attention of the people. But on the flip side, the Gentiles want to use God as a means to an end. They're like, here, God, lavish me with all that I request. So in both cases, in both cases, be it the hypocrite or the Gentile, you are the center of your worship. It's ultimately all about you. You're the number one. You are your own ultimate desire. You are your own worship. And you're just trying to get people to fall in line with that. Now in terms of empty phrases, by the way, 
I think also <clears throat> in our culture recently, there's been kind of this wave of like new age Eastern mysticism that's, that's gotten in. You've got your yogas and all that. And it actually really kind of fits our culture like an amber glove. Like kind of really self-oriented. And God in the system is not a personal God. Or if he was personal, no religious group really has a corner on actually knowing who God is. God is ultimately like this energy for good. So there have been like books written on prayer that's they kind of hit the New York's bestseller list. And they promote like this way of praying that really misses the mark on what prayer is about. And so they, they give you messages like, if you say this prayer in this way, then God will bless you. Or if you want a blessing in your life, you need to recite these truths every morning. So at the beginning of the morning, you just recite these principles and good things will happen. So at best, at best, praying in this way falls in the category of trying to move God with your perfect words. If you pray this way, you've got his attention. If you don't pray this way, don't expect it. Pray this certain prayer in this way, God's going to bless you, but otherwise, no blessings coming your way. Okay, so that's, that's on the good side, which is not good. Okay, on the bad side, God is actually removed from prayer itself. The God isn't there. You're just praying principles or praying a philosophy of life. Um, I, my coworkers will say, I'm sending you good thoughts. Right? Good thoughts. As if like you're triggering some divine energy that's coming my way, right? With no personal God behind it. No generous, beneficial God. And so again, even this type of praying that's become popular in our culture, it's divorced from a relationship with our Father. So Jesus tells us how we are to pray. Because God is our Father, a good Father. He is a good Father. He knows what we truly need. You don't have to coerce Him into getting what you need. He cares for you. You already have His attention. It's not like He was like, oh, did you pray? No, he, He's already attentive to your every need. So then why pray? God's not like this millionaire businessman with kind of rat kids who just have these huge bank accounts. They, yeah, 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 just take money. Yeah, 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 I got you. I have money, I've got, yeah, I've got resources, go ahead, just take whatever you need. God's not that way. God wants a relationship with us. He already knows our needs, yes. But he wants the dynamic, personal relationship when you actually go to him as a father. He knows you need it. Come to him. Because ultimately, what you need more than this or that or that or this or this or that, all these needs, what you need more than that is him. You need a relationship with your Father. So, when Jesus offers like this different paradigm, a different way to pray, so pray then like this. Don't pray like this, but pray like this. It's ultimately fueled, fueled. The oxygen that keeps the prayer alive is God himself. As one commentator put it when I was reading this week, I think he did it well, the Bible does not present an art. Presents the God prayer. So we're going to study now the, the Lord's Prayer. Now, careful, because you might just fall right into the trap we warned you about. 
You think that if you pray the Lord's Prayer just right, and you get all these words just right, God's going to hear you? No. Jesus is trying to show us this principle, like the reason why we're praying and how it flushes out. So it's not about trying to get these words down perfect. It's trying to see about why he's choosing these ideas when you pray. Now, this prayer has two halves to it. The first focuses on God, and then the second focuses on our need. Notice the order. God first, Father first, relationship first, and then turning to our need. So the first phrase, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So yes, the very first thing that we turn our attention to when we're praying is that God is our Father. We start with worship, acknowledgement. That God is our Father is not the default mode of people. If you're born into this world, you do not start with God as your Father. It's not what the Bible says. When you're born into this world, your default mode before God is rebel. Someone who's fighting against him, turning against him, his enemy. It says that there is enmity between you and God. So God, when you're born, is not your Father. God, through Jesus, through the cross, saves us and adopts us. You were his enemy, but now you are his adopted child, and he's your father. So when you start, when you start with prayer, you're starting right there. I, who was your enemy, am now adopted into your family, and I have your love, and your care, and your attention. So our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed sounds like Halloween, right? What is this word? We don't use this. It means to revere. To like treasure or set apart something as uniquely special. It has to do with recognizing that God is holy, pure, the most precious thing that you could ever have the greatest treasure you could ever own, the most important relationship that you could ever have. To you, it's primary. And to hallow him, to honor him, is to say precisely that with words. That you are the deepest desire of my heart. I am captivated by you. And when he says his name, because God communicates his character through his name, this is who I am. For you. I'm your healer. I'm your savior. I am for you. So you honor and acknowledge that. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this request has, as it were, like this outward and inward dimension to it. There's like this personal personal side to that request, and then there's a corporate or external part to this request. Because you're requesting, thy will be done. Now, to be able to say, thy will be done, we must be absolutely certain, profoundly certain, that God is our Father. Let me read this quote to you. Fathers are often inscrutable to their little children. A four-year-old cannot understand many of his father's prohibitions, but he trusts them. Only if we trust God as Father can we ask for grace to bear our troubles with patience and grace. Well, someone asked, 
how can you be sure that God is trustworthy? The answer is that this is the one part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we have the Lord's Prayer, and then in the Prayer of Gethsemane, Jesus echoes this very thing, Thy will be done. Jesus did that under circumstances far more crushing than any of us will ever face. Jesus is not asking us to do anything for him that he has not already done for us under conditions of difficulty beyond our comprehension. So before you, before you can truly say, thy will be done, you must absolutely trust that he is your father. And then there's the outward dimension that expresses desire that not only does God's will be done, not just in your life, but in the life of the world, that, that you appreciate God and you see his ethics and the way he does things and you just want that to spread over the world. Move over everyone else. It's like the media tries so hard to make us feel like everything's okay. People love people. YouTube, all these like people are awesome. Just completely ignoring the fact that there's corruption. Completely ignoring the fact that there's abuse. Completely ignoring the fact that people are being trampled upon in every corner of society. That there's sex slavery in America. So you think things are okay when they're really not. And so what you're asking for, the more and more you start to see what the world is really like and what God's kingdom is really like, you say, I want the kingdom to spread. I want people to know about you and follow you and love you more than all the other things that they're enslaved by. We want his kingdom to come so that there is no injustice, no poverty, no suffering, no death. That all would be set to right. That the ethic would be motivated by love. But to pray this means that we ourselves are preoccupied with God's kingdom. This is a hard thing to pray when you really like your thing. Really a hard thing to Pray when you're like caught up, like your heart deeply entrenched, caught up in the things of this world. Remember, First John, do not love this world, the things in this world. This world is passing away. If you love, love the world. Like the thing that really just makes you excited is this world. The love of God is not in you. How can you pray your kingdom come when you are caught up with this world and you can't? So at what is the fuel for this prayer? The fuel is preoccupation with the kingdom of God. Seek that kingdom first and his righteousness. Seek it. He says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? That's where your heart is. And when we personally begin to experience healing, peace, awe, and wonder of God's rule in our own life, we would want that to extend everywhere. So we say, Thy kingdom come. So that's how the first half opens. It's a God entrenched, God saturated start. It's, it's about worshiping and adoring God, recognizing who He is and what He's done for us first. And then you turn to petition. The first half is adoration. Thanksgiving, because that heals self-centeredness. 
So then we pray, give us this day our daily bread. He's talking here about physical provision. Give us this day our daily bread. We acknowledge that God is the ultimate provider of all that we need. And because God is the ultimate, ultimate provider of all that we need, then where else are we going to turn to to request for help with need? Go to God. But remember, He's a caring Father. He holds all of creation in His hand. He brings rain to different places on this earth. He gives rain even to His enemies. How much more will he care for you as child and give you what you need? And it says for a daily bread, not for bread 50 years from now. Daily bread. Just like God would give manna to his people in the wilderness. Just enough for today. No more. So you would learn trust him. Trust him. Because it's him who's going to see you through this. Luxury abundance. Well, God gives abundance. But remember, we talked about this last week, and I'll say it again. One of the reasons God gives you abundance is so that you could help other people. In some ways, someone's daily bread is going to come from you. Because God gave you abundance so you can give to them, and at the end of the day, what will they say? Thank you, Lord, for providing for us. Yes, they will appreciate the fact that you were an instrument to God, but ultimately, praise will go to God. There's that proverb, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Make me a middle class person, right? Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? I've got it. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Because when we have abundance, when we have riches, we tend to think, I did it. Right? We attribute it to like our skill and our hard work. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We earned ourselves our paycheck. We've earned ourselves a retirement. We've done all these things for ourselves, and by golly, we deserve it. But where did you get those skills? Where did you get that job? Because remember that time you're desperate and you really need a job, and you pray, God, give me this job, and you got the job, praise be the Lord. And now 30 years down the road, you're like, look what I've done. The kingdom I've built, right? <laughs> Who gave it to you? Who gave you the opportunity? You made a good investment? Well, how can that crash? Stock didn't crash, and you lost all your money, like a bunch of people did in 2008. Like, because God provided for you in those moments. So ultimately, your provision comes from God. Now, if it's all about yourself. If it's all about self-centeredness and how great you are. You will not say, give us this day our daily bread. You say, God, I've got it. But this is... A daily reorientation. God, you provide. In good days and bad days, you provide. And you've given to me exactly what I've needed. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Which also ties, by the way, with the warning he gives at the end of the prayer. In verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Yikes! Now remember, what is the point of this passage? The point of this passage was way up in 6 verse 1. Beware the hypocrite. A person who's a hypocrite, a person who thinks 
that they can earn a good standing with God. A person who thinks that God's impressed with them because of what they have done will, first of all, never really think, forgive us our debts. You'll never see yourself as impoverished before God. You're just trying to work, work it out yourself. Don't worry, God. I know I you know, did something wrong against you. I'll make it up to you, God. It works out. It's because it's like the parable that Jesus said. There's a person that owed like a decade's worth of debt. Like, how are you going to pay that off? You're not. God's got to remove it from you. He's got to forgive the debt. The hypocrite says, I've got it. Let me do these right things. God says, let me take it. Forgiveness, the word forgiveness, it's like, it comes out of a word picture. To take off and place somewhere else. So in the sacrificial system, in the Old Testament, like, your guilt was removed when you took off your iniquity and you placed it on something else that was sacrificed in your place. That's what Jesus does. He takes our debt. He takes our transgression. He takes our iniquity, the stuff you could never pay off. He takes it off of you, takes it on himself, pays for it in full. No debt. You're forgiven. And you recognize it. Now, if you think you can earn forgiveness, if you think you can earn God's favor, then when some, something, someone does something against you, now what's your default mode? Work it off, buddy. You owe me. I made myself right with God. You can make yourself right with me. No biggie. It's about, about you getting restoration, getting what you want from this person. So, Jesus says, well, that's a hypocrite. Jesus says, pray this. Forgive us as we forgive others. Jesus taught us to pray for forgiveness as part of an ongoing communion with God. We need a fresh understanding, a fresh experience of his grace and his forgiveness as we forgive. We need to remind ourselves, to be mindful of it. We need to admit that there's something wrong with us that turning to God can fix and heal us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this position is both stated in the negative and the positive. The negative, lead us not into temptation. Why? Because you recognize that you are a frail, easy distracted, fickle human being with a little heart that runs after little pleasures so much quicker to say, God, lead me not into temptation. Lead me beside still waters. Lead me to a place where my soul can be refreshed by you. And deliver us from evil. Because guess what we live in? A fallen world full of evil, full of temptation. So, the negative is don't lead us into temptation. And positively, when that evil comes upon us, deliver us. You, deliver us, please. You be the mighty warrior in that moment. The Lord is our shield and our rock, our fortress in time of need. You are not going to pull yourself out by your own bootstraps. Your victory over sin be through Christ, be through God working in you. We were at the beach a week ago, Moonstone Beach. I like Moonstone Beach because they have the really long, shallow waves. Long and shallow. My kids love it, right? So this, these are waves I can let my children get involved in, right? Not the big, crashing ones out there. So Violet, I'm out with Violet, 
and we're getting closer and closer, and you can see the excitement building. And so the first one comes in, and she's getting all excited, and it, right when it's about three feet from her, it dawns on her what's about to happen, and she just turns and grabs onto my leg, right? And then the way it hits, and she's just hanging on like, dear life, okay. That's what we do with God. Temptation comes, the wave's about to hit, you turn, you grab God, you say, get me through this. So that is our prayer. God entrenched, fueled by knowing who God is. And then there's fasting. So, like, the third pillar of there's almsgiving and there's praying and there's fasting. Now, again, a good, righteous person is going to fast twice a week, fast at the right festival, do all this fasting, and then look like horribly miserable when they're doing it. Maybe put a little mask on if you're throwing masks at home. Right? Stuff we don't do in our culture. Although it's that Ash Wednesday thing. Which corporate public fasting is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's just if you're doing it to impress people, to show people that you're fasting. Now, fasting is not something we practice, so why do it? And I think the best definition I've ever heard came from John Piper, who fasts regularly. And he says, fasting is the exclamation point at the end of our prayer. It's like, we need you this much. We need you more than we need food. Water. We need you this much. Now Jesus tells his disciples, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice, Jesus is presuming his disciples will fast. He presumed they're going to pray. He presumed they were going to give to the poor. He presumed there are going to be times in your life that you need God so much and you recognize that you need God so much that you will fast. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, we're in 6, and then close like, what, you're, you're away? Matthew chapter 9, we're going to, Jesus is going to have a long conversation about fasting because when Jesus was on this earth, he said, he, his, some Pharisees came up and said, why don't you disciples fast? Unrighteous people. See a connection here? Righteous people fast. Your disciples aren't fasting. Right? Okay. And so Jesus says, there are appropriate times to fast. But when the bridegroom is here, it's not that time. But the time is coming when the bridegroom will not be here. Here we are, 2,000 years, waiting for our bridegroom to come in this wretched world with all the sin and corruption. There are appropriate times. The ultimate warning is this. If you think, if I think, you can be tempted this way. Jesus says, keep keep watching for this, because this is going to encroach on your life again and again and again. If you think that it's your good deeds that that put you in a right standing before God, like God's going to hear you or appreciate you or acknowledge you because you're praying and you're fasting and you're doing all these right things, you've got it backwards. Those things in and of themselves mean nothing unless, unless 
These are a result of God working in you. That what he says that you ultimately need is a heart transplant, a worship transplant. You need to worship other things. Don't rely on those things for your right standing. There are evidence that God is working in you. Praise be to God. But at the end of the day, rock of ages, trust in me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let your water and the blood in the river side which flow. Be a sin, the double cure. Got rest. Sorry. <laughs> it's blood bought. Ah, oh, save from wrath and make you pure. Save from wrath and make you pure. And if you're prayerless, you're prayerless. Then you need to soak your heart in God's word. Hear from Him. Learn from Him. It's only as you know Him as Father that you would be able to learn to pray in this way. Think of Jesus. Think of His prayer. He was on to something. He knew something. He'd get away in the mornings before the day started. He'd go into like the hills and pray with His Father. When He was in Gethsemane, the night before His crucifixion, He got away to be with His Father. He knew something. But the only way he was going to get through a horrible day, a day of which you'll never have to experience, he needed that time with his father. He needed that communion. And he's saying, join with me in this. Join me. That there is delights and pleasures forevermore that will be found in this relationship. And think of how joyful and content and solid Jesus was. He's asking us to do that with Him. Join with Him and pray to our Father. Join in that relationship. Jesus was the Son of God and we've been adopted as His brothers. He's saying, join with me in this. Prayer is us joining back into the fellowship that was lost. Do you remember in Genesis that God used to walk with His people in the cool of the day? Stopped happening. But we have it again. Prayer. And it's a taste and it's a longing for the day, for the heavenly reality, when we'll be in His presence. We'll be talking to Him, fellowshipping with Him, loving Him, and being loved by Him. And us, with our pitiful little prayers, God is with us. He gives us His Holy Spirit with groanings too deep for words. The little cries for help, our little false starts, our little like running out of steam. The Holy Spirit is there. He's been given to us to pour the love of God in our hearts and to intercede and to groan on our behalf. The Christian don't stop praying. Small, don't stop. God hears you. In Revelation, it talks about there's an altar of incense and smoke rises before God, and it's our prayers. He hears them all. He loves them all. He delights them. He delights in them. Let us join his table. Let us feast with our Father. The worship team will come up and
to die for us so we might come here feast at your table. Lord, you nourish us. You provide for us not just physically but spiritually. Without you, our souls would starve. 
Lord, we thank you that you challenge our hearts. Thank you for conviction. Lord, I don't think anyone here, including myself, could rightly say that I have a prayer life that I would desire. But this is an area that I completely fall short on again and again. What will you do with the gift of prayer? So thanks be to God who gave us Save us from our prayerlessness. To transform our hearts. To depend on you, love you, and be satisfied by you. We thank you for your spirit. It works in our hearts to make sure this happens. Who produces in us the cry, Abba, Father. That teaches our soul to run and cling to you in times of temptation and reorients our heart's affections so when things of this world entertain us and we don't feel like praying, feel the pull, feel the nag, we know we have to come to you. Thank you. So as we feast now, encourage us, sustain us, and build us. Christ our Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And our faith shall be sights, and the prayer will not be in a secret room where the God is in secret, but we'll see him face to face. Some people are already there. Stand as we close.